Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. This is a special episode of Rewind Replay where we take earlier episodes in this podcast that are either favorites of mine or favorites of listeners and replay them since our audience today is tenfold bigger than it was in the first few months that this podcast ran. And so this will give new listeners a chance to hear old episodes that uh, that I think are meaningful and are important to the discussion. So with that, we'll go to part three of our four-part series on the doctrine of Christ. So we've been talking about the mighty change, the doctrine of Christ. We've talked about uh, the principles and ordinances. We've talked about faith and some of those other things. And so today we'd like to get into grace. And so you want to kind of listen to these in order, but this this will kind of go into grace and discussing it as the enabling power of Jesus Christ. So let's begin. Grace is likely the most underappreciated principle of the gospel, yet it is also one of the most needed and important. As we discussed earlier, it is impossible for us to earn our salvation. It is impossible for us to overcome our weaknesses on our own. It is impossible for us to be sanctified and saved in the kingdom by our own merits. If we add the grace of God, we can do each of these things. God's grace does several amazing things for us, and I hope you might bear with me as we go through many of them. Grace is the power which enables us to become perfect. Some believe it is a gift given to us after all we can do. In actuality, it is the power we should rely on all along the way to becoming like Christ. It is how we become both perfected in Him and truly perfect in some future point to be exalted. While these two states of perfection are described later, we need to know what gives us grace and how we increase it. Without grace, we will always be unclean and imperfect and unable to truly rise above the natural man. You see, grace enters the picture as soon as we begin to exercise faith and humble ourselves. We find that in Ether 12.27 and Romans 12.3. This is a gift that enters in even before baptism. Ether 12.27 tells us 
that Christ can make our weaknesses strengths. It is by grace that this miracle occurs. We also find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7-10, through 10, where Paul says, When I am weak, then am I strong. Grace varies in amount from person to person based on their faith and humility and the effort that they put in to progress, the attitude and motives that they have. We are also taught that once we have grace, if we begin to develop pride again, that we can lose the grace we had. It is a gift and a blessing that can only be kept by our meekness, our faith, and are continually trying to be Christ-like. We know that all blessings are predicated on obedience to certain laws. Grace is a blessing, and it is predicated on continued faith and humility. John 1.16 and DNC 93.13 tell us that as we press forward in this law, grace shall be added to grace. There is always more grace to gain or to lose based on our moving forward toward Christ or our turning from Him. There are some of you who still feel that this blessing of grace is tied to our work or to our keeping the law of commandments. It is not. It is only tied to faith and humility wherein it enters in. That isn't to say that keeping the law of commandments or doing good works is not necessary or required. We'll get to that later. If it then continues to be given to us in increasing increments as we progress in the law of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, endure to the end, we can see that from Romans 11.6, even James tells us God gives grace to the humble, and we see that from Ether, that it is in being the natural man and falling short that we see our weakness, and in return humble ourselves, which turns us to Christ, so that we can receive His grace, which is sufficient. Remember, it is about turning to Christ, not to our own efforts. Second Timothy one nine. That has been the plan from the very beginning in the councils of heaven. That plan was to point us to the Savior. Paul shows us that our works, if they are sincere, are a result of grace working within us. Even on LDS.org, where we look up the word grace, one of the definitions given says that grace is the enabling power that allows us to do many good works that we could not do on our own. If we are truly humble and exercise real faith, it leads to the gift of grace, helping us to do way more than we can do on our own. Paul indicates that the grace comes first after his faith and that it has allowed it and that he has allowed it to work within him and not be given to him in vain. 1 Corinthians 15:11. Paul tells us here he hasn't wasted it, that he hasn't assumed he was saved by grace alone. So for any who want to say that we are saved simply by confessing and believing, not the case. Although that step may allow grace to enter in and to begin the process of progression. If we go to LDS.org and look up in the topical guide the word grace, we see that it is a gift that results from the atonement. It is a gift that we are given, but do not deserve. It is the enabling power given to us to accomplish what we can't on our own, and that its continued increase is predicated on our obedience to the principles and ordinances of the gospel. Not just obedience for the sake of obedience, but to those principles and ordinances. It is included here in case there is ever a change in the online format so that it is accessible. The following three paragraphs are from LDS.org, its website. Notice in referring to obedience, to commandments, grace is based on our trying to keep them, not our exact obedience. This is because we need to have the gift of grace first before there is any hope of progressing in our path of perfection or true obedience. In other words, if exact obedience is the requirement to have grace save you, then one is not recognizing that grace coming in as the enabling power and allowing us to then do good works we could not do on our own, which include being obedient to the commandments is actually a precursor to that obedience. The LDS.org site states, Grace is a gift from Heavenly Father, given through His Son, Jesus Christ. The word grace, as used in the scriptures, refers primarily to enabling 
to the enabling power and spiritual healing offered through the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. To receive this enabling power, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes having faith in Him, repenting of our sins, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, James 2, 17 through 22, 2 Nephi 25, 23, and 31, verse 20. The definition continues on. The grace of God helps us every day. It strengthens us to do good works we could not do on our own. The Lord promised that if we humble ourselves before Him and have faith in Him, His grace will help us overcome all our personal weaknesses. Ether 12.27 That's the end of the church's definition. Rather than relying on so many other things, God wants us to rely on Christ and to recognize His grace is sufficient. We are told His grace is sufficient in several scriptures. D&C 18.31, Moroni 10.32, Ether 12.26 and 27, 2 Corinthians 12.9, and D&C 17.8, Moroni 10. 32 through 33 tells us how grace makes us perfected in Christ and then allows us later on, by progressing, to be truly perfect in Him. Notice that. It starts off with come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, then tells us the things that we need to do, and then after we do those things, His grace is sufficient that we shall be truly perfect in Him. Second Corinthians 12.9 helps us see how Paul, knowing he had God's grace, could care less about his own flaws, his weaknesses, his infirmities. That doesn't mean he isn't trying to choose the right or that he is telling us that he is saved by grace alone. Rather, he is simply stating that as long as he is progressing, learning, and repenting, that grace is being given to him and he recognizes it is better to have this gift than personal righteousness as one saves and the other doesn't. The atonement and repentance work together through the gift of grace. Ephesians 1.7 Paul also seems to indicate that while he and others were spiritually dead, that it was grace which brought them into life with Christ. It is that which caused that covenant relationship. There are lots of angles to see this scripture from, but I often wonder how we see this Saul or Paul as this horrible man who worked to tear down the church, including his participation in the stoning of Stephen, and then after his vision on the road to Damascus as this person who received an undeserved blessing at the hands of God. Yet there's two things we need to consider. One of them is, do we know if Paul humbled himself in some way and asked God if this Christ was real, to reveal himself to him. And number two, each of us is undeserving of any of the blessings God has in store for us. His kingdom is perfect, and we are not. While grace is an undeserved gift, we are given it because Heavenly Father loves us that much. So what with the second Nephi 25-23 after all we can do? Perhaps we should reverse those two sentences. Perhaps we should understand it this way and begin to better understand what Nephi was trying to say. After all we can do, it is by grace we are saved. In other words, even after all we can do, it is grace that saves us. That doesn't take away what we can or have to do, only that it is grace and not the works that save. Works are still essential part of the plan. They are necessary and they are required, but not as some checklist that when accomplished leads us back to Heavenly Father and His Son. If there is still any doubt here, then Second Nephi 10:24 should put an end to it. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God, and not to the will of the devil in the flesh. And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. The next section is on mercy. This chapter will be short. Mercy is another wonderful gift from God, and goes hand in hand with grace. 
Robert Millet explained it this way. He saw grace as lifting us to more than we can do on our own. He sees mercy as giving more forgiveness than we deserve. We need mercy as much as grace as it is the gift that enables us to be forgiven as we repent. This gift is needed as saying we are sorry doesn't actually erase a wrong we did. His mercy, undeserved as it is based on the law, removes the wrongs we have committed as we repent. Moroni 10.3 reminds us that the Lord has been merciful to all of his children through the ages. He wants us to know that while some see the God of the Old Testament as mean and full of wrath and jealousy, that this is the same loving God of the New Testament. Indeed, both are the merciful Christ, Son of the living God, a father and a son who both so loved the world that they freely gave the Son's life, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Alma 29.10 reminds us how we should strive to always remember the mercy of God and its power to cleanse us from sin. In the temple interview, we are asked a question whether we understand the role of the Savior as both Savior and Redeemer. Sometimes we just lump those together. But have we ever considered what those mean? Savior and Redeemer. Mercy and grace. A Savior saves us from our sin as we repent. He lifts us out of the hole that we've put ourselves in. The Redeemer redeems us from our fallen state. So once we've been lifted out of the hole, the Redeemer takes us from where we're at and lifts us to a higher plane to be like Him. Savior implies the gift of mercy. Redeemer implies the gift of grace. The next time you're asked that question in the temple, stop for a moment and consider those two words And then ask yourself, do you have a testimony of both of the Savior's roles as Savior and Redeemer? The next chapter is on repentance. One step we seem to want to skip past is repentance. Repentance is the act of asking for forgiveness and the giving up of the sin in the first place. Alma 32.13 tells us that he who is humble will repent, and he who repents shall find mercy. All of the principles discussed through this are inseparably connected. One must see that that every one of these is a piece of the path that leads back to being like Christ and being with Him. We are given weakness so that we will be humble. He who is humble will look to Christ and exercise faith and repent. He who has faith and repents will find mercy and grace. Over eternity, mercy and grace will sanctify us and make us celestial. We cannot be celestial if any one of these is missing from our life. Without repentance, mercy will not come into our lives and we will not be left We will not become the changed person God needs us to be to enter back into his presence. Helaman chapter 4 verse 15 says, Let us see that there are blessings predicated upon repentance. One of them is to prosper. We may want to define what that means as worldly wealth or good health, but it is up to God to decide how this is fulfilled. And more times than not, it is likely prospering in a spiritual increase, as this is the only prospering that moves us forward to being like Christ. Alma 42.4 shares with us that life is just a time to prepare to meet God. Sorry. Alma 42.4 shares with us that this life is just that, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to repent and to serve Him. While serving Him is an outward action toward others, repentance through, though perhaps requiring outward actions to show the sincerity, is of itself an inward action. Repentance is introspective. It is seeing in one's self one's flaws one's shortcomings and imperfections and working with christ to correct them it is giving all your sins to know him alma twenty two eighteen. alma nine thirteen explains that 
if we do not keep the commandments, and we could logically add, do not repent of those we break, that we shall be cut off from the land, the land or the land that we shall reside in in some future glory. Remember, they are the same. This earth of the here and now is the future celestial kingdom. D&C 19, 15-18 explains that if we choose not to repent, that we will then be called to suffer even as Christ suffered. We should be forewarned, though, this suffering will not sanctify us. It will not change us. We will have paid the debt for our sin, but we would be left having not become more Christ-like, and therefore being left to a lesser glory. Moroni 8.10 helps us see that repentance must precede our being baptized. Repentance, again, is part of the process of becoming humble. Alma 6.3 links not repenting to pride. We will let our pride keep us. Will we let our pride keep us from living with God again? Pride is the opposite of humility, and also the biggest factor in slowing down, halting, or even reversing that sanctifying spiritual change. Mosiah 4.10 teaches us an important principle we must understand. There is more to believing that we must repent. In fact, we say there is more to it than just believing that we need faith or believing in being humble. We must also do them. Many people know there are things in their life that need repented of. They recognize these unrepented sins will hold them back. They see that repentance is needed just as much as we need food and water to live, but they put off the repentance. They will do it later, or perhaps they are willing to suffer as Christ did. They may be afraid of the actions others might take on them to help them through the repentance process. Meanwhile, they fail to comprehend the great disservice they are doing to themselves as they put off the necessary change they must go through. They are missing out on mercy and sanctification that comes through true repentance. They are preventing spiritual growth that will allow them to be resurrected with a celestial body and to live with God again and to remain in His presence. If we could see things as God does, we would be eager to repent, to put off the natural man, to rid ourselves of our sins. How could any worry we have over repenting in this life have any value superior to that of living with our Heavenly Father and His Son and being heirs with Christ for eternity? Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll finish with this last chapter on justification and sanctification and how important these two processes are. And so we will finish there. And then after that, when we pick this up next time around, we'll begin by starting about ordinances. To be justified is to be pardoned or found not guilty of one's sins or transgressions. There are two ways that most of mainstream Christianity sees that we can be justified, though there is also a third way that has been revealed in latter days, which we spoke of a little bit earlier. Number one, we can keep the law perfectly, which we know is impossible. Paul constantly refers to how, according to the law, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. Paul glories in his infirmities as he is living the gospel law of faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, enduring to the end, rather than the law of Moses, or keeping rules. Number two, we can repent and utilize the atonement of Christ as to attain his mercy and forgiveness. As Job states, our sins, though they be as red as scarlet, shall be as white as snow. But there is the third way we mentioned just a little bit ago, to suffer for one's own sins as Christ suffered. D&C 19, 15-18. We will be forced to suffer for our sins if we refuse to use the atonement to cleanse us of them. One way or another, every one of us will be justified. Any of these three will justify us, but only number two will also assist us in the process of being sanctified or becoming perfect with Christ. 
Some folks think they can go through the third path, and upon completing this suffering for their own sins, they can enter into the celestial kingdom having been justified. But they miss the real issue. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 21, tells us we not only must be justified, but that to be celestial, to have a celestial body, to enter the celestial glory, one must be sanctified as well. What is this sanctification that is being spoken of? It is to be spiritually changed. It is the mighty change spoken of by Alma. It is being perfected in Christ, to have one's soul expand, to have one's heart swell. It is to be in a progressing change that ultimately has us having no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Mosiah chapter 5 verse 2. Alma chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters in the Book of Mormon. The whole first half of the chapter revolves around describing what this mighty change is. In essence, it is to have the countenance of Christ upon us. Then, in the second half, in verse 26, we are asked to make an evaluation of ourselves. Essentially, even if we had once felt this mighty change, we are to look at ourselves in the mirror and see if today we still feel God's grace and mercy. If this mighty change is still active in our life, you see, it is not good enough to have felt the change once, long ago, when we converted, or when we were on our mission, or when we turned our life around after hitting rock bottom. What happened in then is not important. It is whether the change is currently at work. If we look in the mirror and do not feel this principle active in our life, then it is time to go back to the beginning and exercise faith and humility and seek God's grace and mercy and bring this sanctifying power back into our lives. This sanctifying, enabling power has the ability to make us better than we are. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 tells us that a life influenced by grace will cause a change in behavior, causing one to better serve God and his children. Brad Wilcox stated in his talk, my grace is sufficient, that a friend had told him a life impacted by grace will begin to resemble Christ's life. Grace is not about giving us a free pass. It is about helping us to progress in becoming like the Savior. So how do we, the eternally indebted and always sinning, become truly Christ-like? How does this grace work? Well, when we are baptized, we enter into a covenant with the Savior. This covenant, we are taught, is a two-way promise. We promise to be willing or to try to take his name upon us, to keep his commandments, and stand as a witness of Christ at all times. God, in turn, promises us his spirit. In this covenant relationship, we join with Christ and become one with him. 2 Corinthians 12.9 tells us that Christ stated to Paul that not only is his grace sufficient, but that Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And Paul concludes here that he has no problem with his infirmities. He is not talking about his health, necessarily, as he goes into several different things that he glories in. He's talking about his weaknesses as well. Remember, Christ is the physician whose ultimate goal is to heal the spiritually sick. Paul recognized that even though he still had spiritual weaknesses and was a sinner, he recognized that he would glory in God's grace as it was grace that saved him, not his works. Paul's words are used so often by those outside of the church to try and show we are saved by grace alone. But throughout Paul's words, true doctrine is plainly taught. Paul knew works didn't save him, but that God's grace would impact him and change him in such a way as to be put on the path of progression that leads back to Christ and being Christ-like. This covenant relationship is mentioned in Moroni 10, 32-33, where we are told that if we come unto Christ, we are immediately perfected in Him. In other words, we, even though a sinner, get to borrow Christ's perfection and be imperfect but perfected in Him. 
then we are on the path to deny then as we are on the path to deny all ungodliness and to love God with all our mind, might and strength, we receive grace and become begin to become sanctified and become perfect in Christ. Two things here. One, putting off all ungodliness must be understood as a process. If not, we will find ourselves falling short and continually feeling hopeless and discouraged and perhaps even find ourselves giving up. Two, notice that immediately upon coming unto Christ, we are perfected in him. Then, after going through the process of the refiner's fire and denying all ungodliness, we eventually, at some future moment between now and in the distance of eternity, we become perfect in Christ. Perfection is the real goal. It must be done with Christ and His grace, and it must be understood in the context of eternal progress or as an eternal process. We should feel the pressure lifted off as we no longer see that every moment it is either perfection or failure, yet we should be anxiously engaged in the work of salvation. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. While I feel from Paul's words that he worked hard to serve God and God's children, I do not sense that he felt any pressure from God that anything less than perfection at this very moment that he was then a failure. I don't think Paul saw it that way. The grace of God relieved his pressure, not added to it. C.S. Lewis wisely remarked that when we turn our life over to Christ and live this gospel covenant, and then he says, quote, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. That concludes this episode of Mormon Discussion as we talked about grace and mercy, justification and sanctification. I hope that uh, these gave you some things to talk about. Again, you can reach me at realmormon at gmail.com. You can find this on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. This podcast is found at mormondiscussion.podbean.com or on iTunes under Mormon Discussion. And I hope you have a wonderful day. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless. Say